You are listening to Mantra and Magic. The podcast where Eastern philosophy meets Western magical practice. Each week, we will introduce you to concepts, people, and tools that we hope will bring you into closer alignment with your true nature and your divine self. We are your hosts, Amy Solara and Jeremy Renta. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Mantra and Magic. Today, we have an incredibly special guest, author Charlie Morley. Uh, he is the author of books such as Dreaming Through Darkness. Um, he has a new book coming out in October titled Wake Up to Sleep. Uh, I have been a fan of yours for the past year now. Uh, my partner, Lindsay, uh, introduced me to your work. And uh, one of the things that I have been most amazed by is that before you even start kind of getting into any of the practices in the book, uh, I have started actually processing trauma beforehand. So things will start to kind of come up. Um, one of the things I wanted to start off with asking you, uh, how is it that you got into this? I know that you've been doing lucid dreaming since you were a teenager. What is it that kind of got you into the research aspect of it? Into the shadow stuff or the research stuff? Both. Um, actually, maybe the answer is the same for both. Um, I think if you have enough lucid dreams, you're going to encounter your shadow. Like there's no way about it. At a certain point, the unconscious is like, every time I give you a dream, I'm trying to communicate with you. So now you're having lucid dreams and we're having like one-on-one -on -one communication. I know what I want to talk about. So very soon when we start having lucid dreams, the first thing the unconscious wants to talk about is the shadow. The, the kind of idea I have is a bit like someone who's been stuck on a desert island and they've been calling Mayday. Like every day they go on the, on the Mayday, Mayday, I'm still on the desert island. And after like 30 years, they're like, Mayday, Mayday, I'm still on the desert island. Someone save me. And then finally they hear a reply. Hey, I'm here. Like I'm here, I'm lucid. They're probably not gonna go, the dude on the desert island isn't gonna go, oh, oh, thanks man, I've been here for like 30 years, so come and pick me up when you're ready. They're gonna be like, fuck man, I'm here. Oh my God, I need some fucking food. I need some shelter, all this kind of stuff. And that happens in our lucid dreams. It's like, as soon as the kind of dreamer feels confident enough that, we're, that, that we kind of come in peace, it will soon bring us our traumas. It will soon bring us our, our shadows and our nightmares. And this isn't because we've done anything wrong. You know, people often think they've kind of uh, unlocked Pandora's box. It's simply that the, the dreamer, that part of the mind that, that consciously wants to um, engage with us is going for the big things first. It's like, right, no time for small talk. Let's bring in the big issues here. So I think you're gonna meet your shadow if you start lucid dreaming anyway. Um, so that became, uh, you know, how I started to get again, getting into shadow work. And I didn't know it was the shadow. I thought it was, I thought I was being attacked by demons. All this shit I hear now, people say, oh, I'm being attacked by demons in my lucid dreams. I'm like, oh yeah, most probably not. You're just meeting your shadow. This is cool. Do this, do that. Um, and then the research aspect, like working with trauma and, and working with the veterans and stuff again, was people with nightmares, you know, people coming back from war zones and it's very, very natural to have nightmares when you've been exposed to a traumatic event. Uh, and yet we live in a society that pathologizes nightmares as if there's something bad. Pathologizing a nightmare is like pathologizing a scab. You know, if you cut your arm, you want a scab to form. Without a scab, your, your arm's gonna get infected, the cut's gonna go gangrenous. Um, and yet we live in a society where we think that nightmares are something bad. In fact, nightmares are a good sign. They're a sign of healing. 
I've met psychologists who said they're more concerned when a client turns up after a traumatic event and they are not having nightmares than when a client turns up and they are. Because if they are, that shows at least the, the brain or the mind is already starting to process the trauma. Whereas if there's no nightmares and no effect on their sleep, could be a sign of denial or repression. I yeah, I noticed that you, sorry, were you saying something, Amy? I was just have, have a question where um, I had a roommate for several years who had had a reoccurring nightmare since almost childhood, but it had nothing to do with her childhood. It was the man breaking into the house nightmare that's pretty common for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Would you say that if they have something like that where they don't know what triggered it or they don't know what's currently triggering it, like how would they move towards it? Like step one, lucid dream, but then mm. step two, does it matter like where it comes from? So I think we, we assume that kind of a man breaking into a house nightmare would be linked to some sort of trauma from childhood where a man broke into our house. But if we look at the dream as being an internal representation of our own mind, I'd be really interested to know when those dreams started and it could be the emergence of the masculine. Was it a female friend? Yeah. Yeah, so it could be, it could be very interesting to see that as the emergence of the masculine came into your friend's psyche, her house, her mind was being broken into. There was some sort of conflict between the masculine and feminine aspects. Um, if you start to look at dreams like that, it becomes much more kind of workable. Um, I mean, you, it's that or you jump to like, oh, it's a past life thing. Right. And the past life thing is a sexier way of looking at it, of like, oh, if the trauma didn't happen in this life, maybe it's an epigenetic trauma for my ancestors and past life stuff. And sometimes that's applicable. But I think um, as soon as you describe your friend's dream, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder when that dream started. Um, and how, how to know if you've nailed the interpretation of a dream, how to know if you've actually got it, the dream will stop. Mm -hmm. So if your friend was here now and if they felt some sort of resonance, that possible interpretation, of course, like we can never interpret anyone's dreams, but we can offer possibilities. She was like, oh shit, yeah, because just at that time, like, you know, I don't know, whatever, my mom and dad were getting divorced or something and my view of masculinity and fatherhood was being challenged or something, the dream would simply stop. And we'd know that then your friend would be able to kind of in retrospect, oh yeah, then perhaps that interpretation was correct because once I'd got the message, once I'd opened the letter, which a, re a recurring dream is like a letter being sent again and again and again that we're just not opening, or if we're opening it, we can't read the language. But once we open it and read the language, the letter writer will stop sending it. Um, so who knows, it could be something like that. I love that. I love that it's just like, they keep forwarding the email until you finally yeah. open the message. Yeah. And we've got like, we're setting up junk mail filters. The ego is setting up junk mail filters, which we don't need. It's like junking emails, which should really be getting through. But the egoic sense of self is so challenged by the insights that the dreamer offers. It sets up these like weird junk, ma junk mail filters. You know, that's why I always ch check my junk mail in real life, right? Because there's always about one every hundred junk mails is actually a really genuine email that somehow has just been filtered out. I'm like, thank God I checked the junk mail which is why I say check all your dreams, you know, write down all your dreams. It doesn't matter if they're lucid or whether they seem to be crazy because in one in it, one in every hundred, you'll have a gem, a complete gem. But unless we're kind of checking that inbox and that junk box every day by keeping a dream diary and by acknowledging our dreams, we might miss them. Makes so much sense. Um, it seems too that like a lot of this is about denial of what we already know, right? Like there's so much stuff when it comes to trying to, you know, you'll look up representations of what something means in your dreams. And it, it, a lot of the times it's personal. You're going to know what the thing is that means more than, you know, looking up what an elephant means in, you know, okay. in a diary. 
totally you know let's say me and you have a dream of a cat right and we go onto google or we buy some dream dictionary book and say oh a cat means this totally depends maybe i was mauled by a cat as a child and maybe you love watching lolcat videos before bed like completely different interpretation right for you it's joy for me it's childhood trauma and yet we google it and it says cat means xyz like those dream dictionaries are really bad they're they're yeah they're not even neutral i would say they they have a negative effect on people because they stop us finding out our own internal symbology uh, but by keeping a dream diary you can start to like get you can make your own dream dictionary like my brother what does he represent my father what does he represent cats what do they represent my puppy waffles what does she represent and then suddenly you've got a dream where your dad's in a car crash smashing into a car with your brother and you've got your puppy in the back seat and you're like whoa it's rejection of the masculine crashing into my materialism with my misplaced joy on the back seat of my vehicle through life i mean i don't know i'm, I'm freestyling here but you know suddenly it all opens up you're like whoa this is amazing there's the hip-hop background he's a genius sorry i said there's the hip-hop background where you just start. oh yeah exactly oh, just a little rap there <laughs> well let me see hold on i'm gonna check my notes I, I will admit, and I'm going to cut this part out. I'm a little nervous, honestly. I, I have been reading your book like pretty consistently over the past couple of weeks, and I want to just name it. My partner is a, is a coach and a licensed professional counselor, so if I just name it and put it out there, I know it'll help, especially considering we've done almost 60 episodes at this point, and now I'm like, I have not gotten flustered like this. So Amazing. Jeremy, can you promise me something, though, for your own shadow integration? Don't edit that out. Okay. All right. Because that's beautiful. That was a beautiful moment of authenticity there. So let's definitely keep that in if you would like. I would I would love if you would keep that in. I will definitely leave it in then. Yeah. Yay. Right. that shadow, baby. Creating shadow things. <laughs> I've never gotten past the oh, I'm dreaming. Wake up. Like, yeah, it's classic, right? Ever. And it's the most embarrassing thing to me because I tell people all the time, keep a dream journal. You want to make sure you're track like I, I life coach, I spiritual mentor, and I'm like having people chant mantras and I can't do it. And it's like, Argh! and so. Yeah, but all that stuff you just mentioned isn't, the reason you're waking up from your lucid dreams isn't because of that. It's just, it's an overexciting thing. It, yeah, it's so it's being overexcited. So it's no, uh, it's no fault or blame of your own. There is something you can do though. If you, if you go into your dream plan, like as soon as you get lucid, so as soon as you get lucid, I'm dreaming, boom, go into the mantra or the spiritual practice or the calling to your inner child or whatever it is. It's like, the dream's kind of like a fire. It needs to be fed to keep going. And I think sometimes people don't do enough when they get lucid. Mm. Like I taught this for the first few years. I was teaching what every other teacher teaches, which is when you first get lucid, don't do a lot, just kind of stabilize the dream, look around. It's like, that's bad advice. Because by that time, the dreamer's like, dude, I've been doing this shit for a long time. Are you, are you going to give me anything? Or are you just looking at, you, you know, the dreamer doesn't like tourists. It likes travelers. Whereas if you get lucid and as soon as I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming. I want to child my, I want to heal my childhood trauma. The dreamer like responds and like, whoa, okay, she's serious. This woman means business. So we're going to give her a long lucid dream to do this. So I'd do that as soon as yet lucid, go into a like audacious dream plan, like call out to meet God or to heal childhood trauma or to meet your inner child, something so big that the dreamer is not going to eject you out, however excited you are. That's such, such good advice. Cause the last, the last time I did it, so last night, no, the night before I was reaching for a pen. Cause I was like, I'm going to write down everything that happens in this dream. So that when I wake up, I remember <laughs> that's what I, that's cool. 
I was like, of course, the Virgo is just sitting down making notes of what's going on in the dream. Because <laughs> That's great. Your intention to write down the dream was so strong. You were even dreaming about writing down the dream while you were in it. Great. You, you speak about in the beginning, uh, kind of like getting used to being aware of your dream, setting the intention that I would have great dream recall. Like that's a very big thing for me too. Like I've, I've noticed too over the past two weeks, because I knew that our interview was coming up, that I have not been dreaming as much. And it's it kind of ebbs and flows. I noticed that kind of comes... Uh, and it'll go like how often, A, I remember my dreams, B, how lucid they actually are. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, when it comes to just, let's start from the beginning. I think that, that would be the easiest for me again, too, because I'm also, I'm ready to jump into, you know, doing shadow work against enemies in my <laughs> dreams. I don't necessarily think that that's the best place to start in the first five minutes. Um, so when you're getting into just dropping into, um, being able to remember your dreams in the first place. What is something that people can do to kind of get into that headspace? To, to remember their dreams more? Yes. First thing, start keeping a dream diary. Like if you set the intention that you're going to be writing down your dream, the goal oriented part of the brain is engaged. And it's like, I'm, I'm on the lookout for something here. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for dreams. And the second thing is to have the intention. A lot of people, um, they don't, they don't remember their dreams because some people think they don't dream. So I think the first thing to know is everybody dreams. There's nowhere to stop the human brain dreaming um, apart from like a heavy head injury or a stroke. But apart from that, everybody's dreaming every single night. Eight hour sleep cycle, you're having five dream periods a night, multiple dreams in each dream period, right? So first thing, remind yourself you're definitely dreaming. And maybe, say, oh, I don't get eight hours sleep. You get six hours. Okay, well, then you've still got like, you know, three or four dream periods. So everybody's dreaming every night. Second thing is, so if I know I'm dreaming, why aren't I remembering? Because I'm not setting the intention to remember. So just by falling asleep tonight, and as you pass through the hypnagogic state, that dreamy kind of falling asleep transitional state, which is similar to hypnosis, actually. If you can be saying, tonight I remember my dreams, I have excellent dream recall, kind of like a self-hypnosis technique as you're falling asleep, that will have a really strong impact on your ability to remember your dreams. But I think that one of the main things is just to know you are dreaming. You know, you are dreaming, so they are there. Do I do I care to remember? You know, if you care to notice, if you care to remember, the dream recall will be there. However, there's also a lot of other factors, a bit like when we sit and we do our daytime meditation practice, and sometimes we can really quickly slip into a one-pointed state of focus, and other times we're just thinking about our crush or what we're having for lunch and stuff like that, and you're like, what, I lit a thousand candles today. I put on my best incense and all I'm doing is sitting here thinking about my crush. Like sometimes there are other things going on. It's like our internal energy system, the food we've eaten, how much sleep we had the night before. So it really is, it's more of an art than a science. Um, so I think look at it in your, when you're working with dream recall, lucid dreaming, look in weeks rather than days. Thinking this week, how was my week for dream recall? Okay, well I had three days, it was really shitty. But then I had these four days, which was amazing. I recalled like four dreams a night on four nights. That's amazing. And one of them, I got lucid. That's a great week. Whereas if we look at it day by day, we, oh, you know, we wake up in the morning and there's a sense of, oh, I remembered nothing. What a failure I am. Um, and maybe that's just because something else was going on in our body. Or we woke up so quickly with the alarm clock, the memory got, got jarred out. It really is kind of an art, not a science. Um, but with strong aspiration and a sense of fun, um, you know, it, that it's enjoyable to remember my dream. It's not a chore. I want to do so because it's fun, because it's cool. It shows how creative we are. 
um, and it can be great for our self-confidence. Um, well, how necessary are you doing a shadow work before this can actually come to fruition for us? Because I feel like a lot of the times, that, like you said, you're dealing with nightmares is like a big stage for people to actually face some of their own shadow, dealing with a lot of the stuff that they don't want to look at in their waking life. Uh, for us to get to the point where we can actually enjoy our dream time, or like I said, you know, for me, I'm, I'm realizing that eight hours out of the day, I could be working and I have a very strong spiritual practice. So I want to be able to drop into that when I'm sleeping, you know? So is, is clearing a lot of the shadow and doing a lot of shadow work uh, necessary before you can actually get to that point? Um, no, I think they're kind of like, they come together. So, I mean, God, if you want to look at your shadow, look at your dreams. If, if you like, you know, if I, for some reason, if someone asked me to do like character analysis on someone, um, I wouldn't kind of search through their social media profile. I wouldn't Google them. I wouldn't kind of see where they work. I'd say, can you get me their dream diary? You get me their dream diary, I'll tell you everything about that person, who they're secretly in love with, what childhood traumas they've got, what phobias they've got, what prejudices they've got. Everything's revealed in the dream. And if we define the shadow as anything that we repress, deny or disown, decide that we hide from ourselves or others, all of that hidden content comes up in the dream. So just by keeping a dream diary, it is actually a shadow integration tool. Um, and more interestingly, this is in my new book, really cool research has shown that um, right keeping a dream diary is good for um anxiety levels because every dream we have whether we remember it or not the um the tone of the dream the feeling tone of the dream has an impact on our psychological state meaning that there could be millions of people waking up every day feeling anxious or feeling annoyed or feeling um uh ascent or feeling depressed and not knowing why and it's actually because they've just had a, an anxiety dream or they had a nightmare, but they didn't remember it, but their body remembers it. So they wake up with cortisol and adrenaline in their bloodstream because of the anxiety dream. And the studies have shown that if people start remembering their dreams, even better if they start remembering them and writing them down, the act of writing the dream down discharges the underlying emotional psychological energy uh, and kind of discharges it from the body. So it's actually good for our mental health, which is brilliant. So yeah, just the act of keeping a dream diary reveals our shadow and is good for our mental health because it allows us to discharge any underlying energy that the dream uh, was uh, had kind of left in our body. So many of my dreams, I'm like running over rooftops from like some kind of crazy thing. And if I can write it down afterwards, I'm like, wow, that was kind of cool. Literally. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so much sense that you're, you're in it in essence, integrating, you're like, you're going through ceremony, and you're integrating the experience yes. through the journaling process. Yeah, yeah. And that's why it's especially um, important to do that with nightmares. You know, I've heard some new agey people say, like, Oh, you ne never write down your nightmares, you'll manifest it. I'm like, fuck, dude, that is literally the worst advice I've ever heard anyone say, yeah. definitely write down your nightmares, it is not going to manifest it, it's going to prevent it from occurring. Like, for one, it does, it kind of discharges the, the emotional tone of the nightmare. But also, if you look at how nightmares work, they're an evolutionary tool um, way back in the day. So if me and you are living in a cave, you're in cave, the cave next to me, right? And you're spending every night dreaming of lions, tigers, and bears, but I'm not. I'm having really peaceful dreams. Then let's say a week later, and we meet a lion, a tiger, or a bear, who's more likely to survive? You because you've been dreaming about how to escape from them, how to run from them, how to hide up for a tree from all these nightmare scenarios, right? So nightmares are actually designed to help us, which is why if you have a like anxiety dream the night before a big talk or a night before a big date or something like that, it's a really good sign. 
because the mind is preparing you for the worst, not so the worst does happen, but so the worst doesn't happen. Uh, they even did a study at the Sorbonne Medical School that showed the top five people. Uh, Sorbonne Medical School is really hard to get in. Only about 10% of people passed the exam. And the top five of that year all had nightmares the night before the exam. And they found a direct correlation to nightmares about failing the exam. And they were classic nightmares. You know, couldn't find the exam room. Uh, didn't The pen didn't work. One woman, she turned over the exam paper. It was a piece of toast. She was like, how the fuck do I write on a piece of toast? Um, crazy, you know, stupid, crazy nightmare. Not stupid, crazy, seemingly crazy nightmares. Um, but they were preparing them. Um, it wasn't like a prophecy that, oh, now you're going to fail the exam. It was showing the unconscious going, I really care about this. So make sure you know where the exam room is. Make sure your exam paper isn't a piece of toast. You know, whatever it was, make those preparations. So yeah, nightmares are, nightmares are good for us. How are they helpful in connecting with our golden shadow? Which again, reading your book, this was the first time I'd heard of this concept. And it really makes sense. Like there's so much stuff of, of our things that we're ashamed of that we hide, but there's also stuff that we repress from childhood, whether it's musical talent or acting or, you know, make, making people laugh that maybe we suppress because we've got people who bully us or people who make fun of us for it. How does that, how do those two things connect? Yeah. So the golden shadow thing is really important because it's crazy how few people talk about it when Carl Jung himself, I mean, Carl Jung never talked about the golden shadow, but the, the concept of golden shadow comes from this quote from him where he says, the shadow is 90% pure gold. So he was saying that 90% of that, which we repress, deny, disown, is not necessarily, uh, you know, our perversions, our traumas, our fears, our prejudices, our racisms, all this kind of stuff, the kind of yucky stuff that we wish we didn't have in us. It, loads of it, the majority of it, in fact, is our hidden talents. You know, our sexuality, which you might hide from others for fear of being um, labeled too outrageous, or our great singing voice, which we hide from our friends because, um, because of views of masculinity and men singing or whatever it is, whatever these cultural expectations are, you know, if it, the golden shadow is basically anything you, um, anywhere you hide your light. If anyone listening now is uh, hides their esoteric side from their friends or family, that's absolutely their golden shadow. So it's actually the same. The shadow, it, the shadow shadows, anything you hide, repress or disown from yourself and others. Um, but yeah, we hide our talents. We hide our sexuality. We hide our brightness. Because just like you said, we are bullied for it by school, uh, at school, or maybe a passing comment from a parent, no one likes a clever clogs, you know, or from a, a mother to her beautiful daughter, oh, you don't want to be too pretty. And suddenly we're repressing our sexuality, we're repressing our beauty, we're repressing our talents. And that'll come up in our dreams too. But rather than coming up in nightmares, it comes up as, um, actually often comes up as celebrity dreams. Ever had a dream you're like on a dinner date with Beyonce or something, or you're like, like going bowling with the Dalai Lama or something. There are often dreams where there's a celebrity who represents a certain part of you, whether it is the Dalai Lama or Beyonce. I think they could both represent equally amazing parts of oneself. Um, and you're often in friendship with them. And you wake up and think like, what does that mean? That's kind of, that's often a golden shadow dream. It's showing that there's part of you that is trying to make friends with this, uh, you know, Beyonce for me, I'm, I use that because for me, she represents like female empowerment. Dalai Lama for me represents full-time spirituality. Um, so we can see in the same way as we have representations of our trauma, which might be the bully from school or might be the person who did that terrible thing from us. We can see these golden shadow personifications appearing in our dream too, which are often celebrities or kind of figures of light. You know, they used to be religious figures, but nowadays we have transposed 
uh, the religiosity of the past onto the shrine of, uh, of celebrity. So celebrity dreams shouldn't be scoffed at. They can be as they can be really kind of archetypal dreams. You know, if we look at the tarot deck now, rather than having the ancient tarot, we could have Beyonce on one and Dalai Lama on the other. They're representing the same things, right? The divine feminine and uh, I don't know what the Dalai Lama is to me, maybe the higher self. There is a really funny tarot deck called the Illust. Oh, that sounds cool. And yeah, it has um, like not just Beyonce, it has Tori Amos, it has uh, Snoop Dogg, it <laughs> literally. But they like, are representing like, yeah. the like 22 major arcana. That yeah, like Oprah cool. is the emperor and like they're just. That's exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Oh, I'm going to find those after this. That's perfect. I'd really love to use those in a workshop. That's a perfect example. It's so, I, I love that you said that because I do have celebrity dreams frequently and I'm constantly telling clients the Marianne Williamson quote of, we're not afraid of our failures, yeah. we're afraid of our success. And here it is, yeah. there it is. Shout out. Yeah, you can get a lot from That's celebrity dreams. Do you, when you lucid dream, since I've never experienced it, do you invite beings in? Do you say like, I would like to work with this aspect of myself? I would like to work with this archetype? Yeah, that this is a perfect link to that last story. So I got lucid and I wanted to meet the divine feminine. So I get lucid and I call out divine feminine, come to me, divine feminine, come to me. So let's just call out for what you want. So I called out for it. And then um, this music started like bum, 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 bum. And I was, oh, wow, what the fuck is this? It's gonna be cool. And then these big doors appear and the doors swing open and these three guys, like muscly guys with their arms folded like that. And they look like security, like kind of bouncers at a nightclub. And they walk through this door. And because you can interpret the dream live in a lucid dream, because you literally, you know, you're dreaming, you know, it's a projection of your mind. So I start interpreting it going, oh, I call to meet my divine feminine. And she shows up as these three muscle guys, because of course I'm, it's beyond gender. Oh, how silly of me to think she'd be a woman, blah, blah, blah. Because uh, there's one black dude, one white guy, and one Sikh guy what, with a turban, your Indian guy, Sikh. Um, and I was even thinking, oh, and the racial undertones. Okay, so I'm representing all the races here, black, brown, and white. Okay, that's interesting. Completely wrong interpretation. Because within a couple of seconds, the music pumps up again, ba, 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 and the doors swing open. And I realized those three guys were the entourage. They were like the security guards for the divine feminine. And through the door, she comes, freaking Beyonce. And I was like, oh my God, my divine feminine is Beyonce. Now, okay, it wasn't actually Beyonce, but it looked very, very much like her, like a spitting image of Beyonce. And I was like, oh my God, my divine feminine. And then suddenly the scene changes and this kind of Beyonce figure, divine feminine is naked on this like sofa thing, kind of like a chaise lounge, like kind of lying um, on, propped up on one elbow. And I'm at her, I'm on my knees looking up at her. And there's no, there was nothing sexual. It was like, she was too powerful for me to have any sexual projection. Like I, I daren't, I daren't project anything sexual onto her. She was just too fierce. Um, and I looked up and I said, are you my divine feminine? And she looked down and this, I'll do a bad Beyonce American accent, but she looked down at me and went, no, honey, you are. And I was like, oh my God, I'm the divine feminine. And I start crying in the dream and then the tears wake me up and like, yeah. So you can call out to meet stuff. You can meet your inner child. You can meet the divine feminine. It's a very unique aspect of lucid dreaming, the ability to um, 
directly interact with and dialogue with personifications of psychological concepts. And they can be very specific. Like once before a kickboxing competition, I met the fear of the fight. Not just fear of fighting, but the fear of the specific fight that was coming up. You can meet your fear of rejection. You can meet the teenage shadow, not just the shadow. You can meet not just the golden shadow, but the golden shadow of my sexuality. You can get so specific. Um, it's like meeting the, the, the tarot deck. You know, all those 22 major arcana are in your head. They just appear in, you know, your divine feminine would appear very differently to mine. And if I called for my divine feminine now, would she still be this Beyonce lookalike? No, she's probably changed because I've changed in the last three years since I had the dream or whatever. So yeah, you can absolutely meet and, and uh, dialogue with these internal parts of yourself. It's very much like ceremony. It's area where I guess it is, it is ceremony. Again, it's setting intention. It's uh, Amy and I met in an ayahuasca ceremony. So there's a lot of like, the next thing that I want to ask is there's a lot of like in, uh, interacting with other people's energies when you're in an ayahuasca ceremony. You take this thing, you kind of step through the veil and then everybody's kind of sorting through their laundry and trying to deal with stuff. Have you had experiences um, communicating with other people who've set the same intention? Have you met other people in dream space and uh, been able to actually, you know, have adventures, I guess would be the term, or have ceremony? Good point. Um, I, I, this is a belief system thing, but my belief system um, is that the lucid dream state is like a closed circuit. You're, you're in mm -hmm. your personal mind stream. Like 99% of everything in the lucid dream is you. It's like, it's a closed, closed loop circuit. In an outer body experience though, it's the direct opposite. It's 99% not you. In a valid outer body experience, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are not inside your personal mind stream. Your personal mind stream has ejected from the constraints of the physical body, of your personal physical body, and is now exploring a wider dimension. So it's not that I don't believe in that possibility. I'm just saying that would be out of body experience work, not lucid dreaming work. Like um, lucid dream versus astral projection? Sorry? It's like lucid dream versus astral projection. Yeah, so lucid dream, like 99% of everything in there is you. With a crucial okay. 1%, I mean, that 1% is, that happens. You know, one in a hundred lucid dreams, you'll something will pop up that is not you. And when you meet it, you won't need to ask. It would be like if a, if a, if a like hologram appeared in my, in my living room right now. It's like the energy is so different. You're like, whoa, that is not my mind. And it's very rare. Almost always it's a peaceful aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, and almost always it's of a higher intelligence is again, this is who knows, this is just belief system stuff. This is my experience based on 20 years of having these experiences. Maybe it's different for others. Um, yeah, but your question, can you meet others? Yeah, I have tried. I have tried. Um, the probably the closest hit I've got was someone entering my dream. So I run these lucid dream drop ins, by the way, here's a Here's a shameless plug, but they're free. So I guess I'm allowed to plug this one without any shame. Um, I run these monthly lucid dream drop-ins where it's like a Q and A session with me and we do dream circles. And there's usually a hundred or so people on those. When I first started doing them like 10 years ago, there were only a few people, like 10 people. And I knew most of them. So we could run these experiments. And one month I said to the 10 other people in the group, from now until the next dream drop-in, I give you the permission, if you are lucid, to enter my lucid dream and basically see what's going on and then wake up and tell me and we'll see if you got a direct hit. So I, I think that's very important. I gave the intention, they replied. I accept your intention, I'm going to try and do it. And then on day like 29, literally the day before the next meeting, 
I'm on Facebook in the morning about 10 a.m. And this dude, he was a friend of mine who comes to the Dream Forum, messaged me on Facebook Messenger or whatever it was back then. And he says, what did you dream about last night? And I was like, oh, nothing, man. I wasn't lucid. I was just um, some weird thing on a beach. And he went, a beach? OMG. Check your email. And then suddenly my email pinged. So I know he didn't have time to write it up, right? He had a dream. Okay, sorry. This is the dream I had. In my dream, I was um, on a beach, but I was had walked out into the water. So I, there was water up to like my knees. And there was like a bar, a cocktail bar. And I was wearing this sun hat, you know, on those straw sun hats. And I had a cocktail. I was drinking the cocktail in kind of, you know, two feet of water. That was my dream. And I'd written it down in my dream diary. His dream came through. His dream report came through. He had become lucid. Once he was lucid, he called out, Charlie Morley's dream now. Charlie Morley's dream now. And suddenly found himself transported to a beach. And in front of him on the beach was a perspex screen, like a dome, um, which behind the he could touch it. And he said it was like solid. Behind the dome, he saw my dream. And it was me standing in two feet of water, wearing a hat, holding a cocktail next to a bar. You know, three very specific hits. And he was banging on the perspex going, Charlie, I'm doing the experiment. It's Matt. It's Matt from the Dream Forum. It's me. It's Matthew. And apparently I couldn't see him. I was like glazed over. He said, he said, you look drunk, but not from the cocktail. He said, you look drunk because of your awareness. And I was <clears> like, yeah, because I wasn't lucid. You were. And what was the perspex? I, again, I think it's a sealed, it's a sealed circuit. I think even if you invite someone in, it's like a sealed thing. Um, so yeah, he got that. That was without doubt a direct hit. Um, so how the fuck do we explain that? No idea. <laughs> I think that's like, it's such a beautiful illustration. Saying. Yeah, it's like when, when we create these circles as witches or magicians or however people identify shamans and we create sacred space and we like make it this nice container that makes so much sense that our ourselves are already doing that when we go into dream space because mm -hmm. it is a ceremony so we already have what you said that like perfect bubble where we could if we woke up choose to move but we mm. don't have to and mm. um and i think that's a, a really good distinction because for a few years when i first got into all this stuff um i didn't know the difference between astral projection and lucid dreaming i thought they were the same i thought you just woke up while you were sleeping mm. and they they are very different and for good reason too like if we're doing yeah. our shadow work if we're doing our processing our deepest fears our deepest longings our deepest um parts of ourselves that we've denied and repressed for years why would we want it to be broadcasted out for anybody to come and play with like this is it's a little treasure so yeah yeah the therapy room is locked like the therapist locks the therapy room. Occasionally, <laughs> someone might knock or have the key. Again, it's like 1%. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's because they're a higher, higher intelligence or they have the master key, right. you know, but 99.9% .9 probably even, I would say it's it's like a closed loop there. Yeah. And interesting what you said about OBs. Yeah, there's still a lot of people who say they're the same. Um, I mean, the, the big thing that I'd say is that a, an OB doesn't require sleep. You know, astral projection, one of the ways you can astral project is from the dream state, uh, but it's only one, whereas lucid dreaming, you can only lucid dream in REM dreaming sleep. So we can put you in a brain scanner and tell you you're either lucid dreaming or you're not. You can't fake it. We can see brain activity. Whereas I had my first OBE while I was awake. 
So I was like, oh, I wasn't even a hypnagogic, let alone asleep. Um, and my energy body shifted out. So yeah, one of the easiest ways to have a, a astral projection is through the sleep state, but it's not the only way. And once you start doing them in the non-sleep states, then it becomes much more easy to define the experience. Have you seen the new movie, Soul? No, I haven't. And it's so weird because I would love to. And it sounds so great because I love Inside Out, uh, Inside Out uh, how they represent all different things. And it seems like it's a similar... It's just um, like that. Where it's like... Oh, where no, you... I haven't. I don't know why I haven't seen it. Yeah, you would love it because everybody who astral projects does it in a flow state. So there's oh, cool. one guy who's like spinning a sign on the sidewalk and yeah. the one driving the ship in the astral realm because he's just That's in a so state. cool. Oh, yeah. No. They show that it's kind of flow states that access it. Yeah. That's very cool. No, I, I feel, um, yeah, I feel I should give you a reason why I haven't seen Soul. There is no reason other than cinemas haven't been open for a year, but I need, I'm sure it's online. I should watch it. Disney Plus. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Jared, what about you on the, on the lucid dream? Have you had like the full shift yet? In the past couple of, I have, like I said, I've been doing a lot more practice as of recently. And I've had, um, I've had kind of that, that vibe like you're talking about where higher intelligence were coming in to speak to me. And the experiences that I've had where I know what their name is prior to them telling me what their name is. And then me having to do an interpretation of what the name actually means. It's like an anagram, like it's a, it's a jumble of words. Um, so I started kind of setting the intention recently to connect with my guides a little bit more to actually start doing work in uh, my dream space. Because a couple of months ago, I had an interesting experience where um, I, I had a guy that kind of came in. I was doing a ceremony in the backyard and uh, I had a guy that life. kind of, what's that? In, in waking life. In waking life, yes. Yeah. So I had, um, I was doing a ceremony, I was doing a yoga flow and uh, doing some angel work in the backyard. And I had a guy come into the, uh, there's a, like a big field and then a parking lot behind our house. And I had a guy pull into the parking lot and was like shining a light around, almost like he was looking for wherever the, the energy was coming from or the sound was coming from, for me chanting. And I was like, I was doing it under my breath. I wasn't like singing it loud, but um, I started, I noticed him and I turned back to start doing my chanting again. And uh, he turned the flashlight like directly at me. And so I kind of sat up and I noticed that he was, it was almost like he was trying to signal me. and I kind of like put out some like a defensive mantra to, to try to block the space that I was in. And then he got back into his car and, and drove off. And a couple of weeks later, I started having really vivid dreams of people being in my house, like you'd said. And um, at one point I go upstairs and I notice that there are shoes in the place and there's a group of people. I'm like, you guys can't be here. This is not right. So I shoo them out of the house. And then a couple of nights later, I have another dream where I'm in, like you said, like a sexual experience uh, with a woman. And it wasn't, it felt intrusive. It felt like there was something trying to be drawn out of my body. And um, I'm a massage therapist and I have really good boundaries when it comes to my clients. And I was like, I can't do this. This is not something I do with clients. I was like, if you want a healing session, then that's fine. But I can't, I can't be engaged in this. And uh, the girl gets up and she says, this keeps happening to me. And then she says specifically, she calls me by name. She says, be careful out there, Jeremy. And then she steps out of her, <laughs> steps out of uh, the dream. And I could see like, it's like she walks through a door and there was a window where there were guys on the other side uh, working on computers. And I woke up and was like very tumescent. Like I was very engaged in the dream. And sure, a couple of days after that, I had a, 
a book show up in my mailbox that was, it had dog-eared pages that talked about um, the trial that the character had gone through. It was, it was, a, it was a, like a, they were doing a, a run-through of an execution and it had like dog-eared pages on part of that book. So I took the book, I bound it and I put a bunch of sage in it and did my own ceremony to try to find the energy of whoever this came from. So again, this is what, what I was wanting to get to from the beginning is asking about like think people or energies coming into your dreams that are intrusive and also how to do your own type of protective work because I was I was lucid enough to actually start doing banishing pentagrams and actually start doing work to try to clear the space. I've had that happen before where it wasn't a big deal. I did a banishing pentagram and was able to kind of like dust whatever the thing was that was in my dream. But this was like, it just got blurry. It was like the thing was still there. I could feel the person that was in front of me. And since then I've been, like I said, I've been doing more uh, dream work to try to connect with my guides and to try to like boost my abilities and uh, you know connect more to my higher self. And those dreams went for me being able to communicate um, relatively clearly with some of these guides to repeated dreams about bathrooms. <laughs> like, it's just, that has been the constant theme. It has been about like, and I know this is kind of tangential, it always gets that way. But that has been the, the big things that have been very present for me in my dreams as of recently. So I don't, I don't know if there's like a, a ceiling of something that I like can't get outside of, if there's something that I'm not dealing with. Um, internally or something that I'm not facing in my waking life. So I don't know where we can go with that, but that's, that's what's going on in my, in my dreams as of recently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Buddhist view is a little different. Again, this is a belief system thing. So I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but the kind of Buddhist view, which is slightly different than the shamanic view is that um, there's kind of nothing to banish. Mm -hmm. Even if, it's an ex that, that basically kind of love is the most powerful energy there is. So I would suggest that if you meet something like that in your dream again, whether it's the 99% of you or whether it's even the 1% outside of you is actually to still like the same rules apply, which is that this is some wounded part of me and that banishing things can be fine because like telling something to fuck off can sometimes be the kindest thing you can say, mm -hmm. but it's knowing that you're telling them to fuck off with kindness until you know, and something more long term can be put into place. So the Buddhist view is like, you know, I have this thing of telling people to hug everything in their lucid dreams. And people often say, but what if, you know, you're telling me to hug all the monsters and demons in my lucid dream? What if one day it is the 1% and I hug them? What then? And I'm like, wow. So what if you hug like an actual, you know, the, the shadow of the world? or like the trauma of the weather? Like, yeah, man, what would happen? I'd die, right? I'm like, no, you might wake up to world peace. Like, so the same rules apply, like compassion is the most powerful force in the universe. And I'll, I'll you know, I know it's easy for me to say this. So just to walk the walk on this, I once was in a lucid dream and I was in this like um, uh, train station in London and I flew down off the top of the train station and there was these people doing this like satanic ritual in the middle of the, um, um, in the, of the train station. They were all like, black cloaked people. There was a, I don't know what it is, pentagram or pentacle on the floor uh, with all these candles. It was like full on satanic ritual. And I was like, oh, it's okay. It's a lucid dream. It's just my shadow. So what am I scared of? I guess I'm scared of Satanism and stuff. So yeah, it's just my shadow. So I just fly over and I see the main dude, the like, obviously the leader, he looks like Charles Dance from um, Game of Thrones. And he's like really tall with this big hood on. 
and he's doing the main satanic ritual. And I fly up to him and I go um, and I hug him. I'm like, Shadow, I hug him to, to integrate him, to dissolve him into light. And suddenly this incredible force. I mean, this dude is so strong. He goes, boom. And I just get thrown off like I'm a fly. And I uh, uh, suddenly I can't fly anymore. I fall to the floor. And he, he rises up and he looks down at me and says, I am not your shadow. I am the devil. And I was like, oh, shit. What if this is the 1%? Or what if I'm in an outer body experience and I haven't recognized it? What if? And I suddenly realized there was no space for what if here. Like, whether this was a shadow aspect manifesting in my worst fear as a lucid dreaming teacher, which is one day I'll go too far, or whether it is the devil, as he says, if I show an inkling of fear, I am dead. So I have to respond to this with fierce compassion. So I kind of, I was on the floor, and I looked up and I kind of literally kind of dust myself down and I flew back up and I grabbed him. And again, I felt that strength. And I went, there is no devil. There is only energy. And he's like struggling, I'm like, energy. And then suddenly, boom, everything explodes into white light. And then just every, everything dissolves. I'm floating in this pure white light and then I wake up. And I still don't know, man, what happened in that dream, whether it was the 1%, whether it was actually the fucking devil, who knows? But I know, thank God, I responded in that way because like that was the only way to respond there yeah. was no time to, to kind of even to do something banishing there would be to say i feel you are a threat so i'm gonna say a banishing natural i'm scared of you so i'm gonna try and block you the only there was only room for fearlessness there and a trust that compassion and embrace was the strongest force in the universe and I mean, this ultimately it goes like you're always talking in in your books or like in some of the videos I've seen you present where what's happening in your lucid dream just multiplies in your waking life where like what you're doing in your lucid dream multiplies. So if you are actually hugging the devil and you burst him into beautiful bliss light, then <laughs> the world's going to be a whole lot better place. Yes. The and next day when your boss is giving you hell at work, it's just easier if you spent your day walking through walls and embracing monsters and stuff like that. Like life just gets a little bit easier, right? <laughs> and I, I used to have a lot of trouble falling asleep because every time I closed my eye, I would see demons. No. And for like the first few tries, I was like trying to send them away and be like, no, you're not welcome here. And then I was like, you know what? No, nobody ever listens to y'all. And I knew I was in that half sleep half waking state but i was like let's sit down to tea i'm gonna pour you a cup we're gonna sit you tell me and this like kind of like clown looking with too many sharp teeth in the mouth stretched blood eyes kind of thing <laughs> was like no one ever wants to look at me because my face is ugly and i was like oh honey and we just sat and talked and again hugged him at the end mm -hmm. And so the first time I listened to your book, I was like, yes, just hug them. Just keep hugging them because it, if nothing else, worst case scenario, it's that part of yourself that gets loved by your conscious because yeah. you're late or you forgot something or you let the stove burn or like whatever it was and you beat yourself up for it. It, that might be that demon. Yeah. So or, or at most it's an actual demon, in which case you just showed it love, which prevents <clears throat> it from being demonized. You know, something becomes demonic when it splits off. What's it splits off from? The universal source of love. 
So it, it was so interesting to hear you tell that story. So my ex-wife, Jade Shaw, who's an out-of-body experience teacher, actually, you should get her on this podcast if you want. Um, she, when she came back from her first theater of ayahuasca and a few other things, she would have demons in her hypnagogia, exactly as you explained. She still has it. She closes her eyes and goes to hypnagogia and just these demonic faces like just come up to her like that. And again, she was trying to get rid of them, push them away. And then now has realized it's, it's a kind of peaceful cohabitation that they arise and she just like, oh yeah, they've been here since the ayahuasca. It's probably some part of me that was kind of exhumed in the ayahuasca and isn't, hasn't been fully healed. Um, and now she kind of looks them in the face and kind of shows them love, sends them love, but very, very similar. These demonic kind of apparitions that appear in the hypnagogic. And so great that you've been able to, that both of you have been able to look at it from um, a slightly less dualistic perspective um, than, oh, it's just demons and I'm screwed. It's like, but it's not. It's, it's aspects of our own mind, which we all have. And perhaps the ayahuasca or the plant medicine that you've done has allowed them to kind of take more visceral form which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing because now you can see what you're working with. Yeah. Now that's right. the cool thing about lucid dreaming is like you get, if I told you to imagine fear, it's kind of like, it's quite a, quite a hard thing to put your finger on. But if you meet fear in the lucid dream, it's like you can actually talk to it. Say, you know, what do you need? What do you want? How will you feel when you get what you need? All the feeling your demons questions. And it's the same with these uh, manifestations in the hypnagogic. It, we can be kind of thankful when that occurs, because just like you said, you know, you're able to sit down and have tea with your demons rather than push them away. Brilliant example. I love that you say, too, in your book, uh, talking about how much energy it takes to actually suppress something. And then once you're actually able to access that, it, it comes back to you. you. Get it completely exactly. right back. Yeah, exactly that. Like keeping a beach ball underwater, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to constantly be kind of pushing it down below the surface. So then we can't fully interact with life. We always want to keep one hand pushing the beach ball down. Whereas if we can actually just let it go and then deflate the beach ball and release the air, mm -hmm. then suddenly we've got two hands. You know, we can, we can engage with life. It's, there's, there's method to this. You know, stuff like shadow work, it's like if it didn't benefit people profoundly, they wouldn't still be doing it. Like it's not attractive. Like when people, when you explain what shadow work is, people don't, oh, great. That sounds amazing. Some people do actually, a, a rare type, but most people are like, oh my God. You know, this shadow work weekend I've got coming up in a couple of weeks, May, the end of May. Um, the first thing I do when I greet people on that retreat is to say like, well done, you're brave. Because most people, when you read the blurb and I say, right, we're going to do an exercise on sexual shame. We're going to look at dropping the mask. We're going to look at parental ancestral trauma. Um, most people run a mile. But if we do it, it's so beneficial. You know, there's a reason we do it because it makes us more, more helpful human beings. It makes us kinder. It gives us more energy. It's, it's like contemplating death all the time. It's like we don't do it to bum ourselves out. You know, Dalai Lama contemplates death six times a day. He does a, a formalized death meditation six times a day. The dude seems pretty chill, right? He's not kind of that depressed. You don't see him, oh, man, I'm going to die. The dude's pretty cheery. So... It's the same with death, which is, of course, the ultimate shadow facing that, the ultimate fear that most of us have. This idea of thanatophobia, fear of our own mortality. Mm -hmm. uh, shadow work really helps to integrate that phobia. It's a global fear. Like yeah. Everybody. And, um, <laughs> uh, I do it every time I get in a car. 
And I was like, is this morbid? For the longest time. Because Jeremy and I, we were living in LA for the longest time. And that's where you live in LA is in your car because you're just driving all the time. Mm -hmm. And every time I got in my car, I thought today could be the day. Oh, good. This good. moment, like right now, going to this friend's house, I could die. And, yeah. and then I thought, what, what is it that's like doing that? And I realized it was coming hand in hand with all of this work at the attempt of integration and mm. how it it's necessary. And I'm so glad that you're finding people who want to do it, who want to spend retreats doing it because mm. that's such hope for the world. Mm. With your, it just, okay. Oh, just because it makes so much sense to it. So like, so if I can be thinking that I'm going to die tonight and this is the last podcast I ever do, I'm going to do everything I can to give everything to this experience, right? Why would I hold anything back if I think I'm going to die? So thinking, constantly contemplating death doesn't limit us. It releases limitations. And this is a, such a simple experiment people can do. Just like try it before you do something. Just consider if I was going to die or when you say goodbye to someone and just think if this is the last time I see them and then maybe just stop and go, dude, you know, a couple of hours ago, I said that thing. I didn't mean that. I'm sorry if I hurt you. And they're like, they'll be shocked. And you don't have to say, I'm, I'm saying that because I might die tonight, but you just say it. And then gradually it becomes a habit and you can stop having regrets. And yeah, so I would say experiment with it. Once a week, live like you're going to die that night and see how different that day is compared to the other six days. Yeah. And then do it twice a week, three times a week. Then every time you get in the car, like you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to go back to retreats, though, because I remember you mentioning how doing it on your own is great, but doing it in retreat is better. What do you do in a lucid dream retreat? So in the day, it's like a workshop set up. So we kind of open the day with meditation and then we'll have like three two hour sessions of learning the lucid dreaming techniques, like doing yoga nidra practices. Um, doing kind of psychodrama practices of acting out our lucid dreams, kind of like a work, like, like one of my lucid dream workshops, basically. But then at night, people go to sleep for the first half in their room. And then in the second half, sorry, I've got a puppy here making noise for people who are just listening to audio, not seeing the video. Um, let's say we go to bed at like 11 o'clock at night and some people will just sleep through until 8 a.m. the next day. Other people will choose to wake up at 3.30 in the morning and then come into the sacred sleeping area where they have bed number two. So they have their bedroom and then they have a kind of a camping setup. Um, and then I'm become their human alarm clock and I'll guide them back into sleep. And then every hour and a half, I'll wake them up and give them a new kind of mantra or something to do as they fall asleep, a new visualization. Then 90 minutes later, I wake them up. Everyone writes down their dreams just for five minutes, then back asleep. So you have like four sessions a night. Essentially, if, if you fall asleep once and wake up once in the morning, you've got one chance of getting lucid. Some crazy guy wakes you up four times a night, you've just quadrupled your chances of getting lucid. So it's essentially that. It's called multiple wake-ups. And you find it in the Tibetan tradition and in the um, Mexican tradition. Uh, they would just do it rather than alarm clocks. Waffles. Um, like the Mexicans would use fig wine. So they'd like take a shot of fig wine before bed, which is a diuretic and makes you need to pee. And that would wake you up four hours, roughly four hours later. And then you could start doing your lucid dreaming practices. So it's got good form and it's fun. It's like a spiritual slumber party. That's amazing. And it makes me wonder, like, I've, <laughs> you also mentioned how you spend so many years of your life 
wasting essentially if you don't start this practice intentionally because then you it's all that time just sleeping and jeremy's brought this up where he's like i don't want to just sleep i want to grow yeah and um when i have two children and i nursed them through the night for roughly three almost four years Mm -hmm. because they're a year apart Mm -hmm. and they wake up every two hours and my dreams were magnificent. I could remember them all. I'd be telling people as I was cooking breakfast the next morning, like, hey, I had this dream and that dream. And so now I'm like, oh, it's that like almost 90 minute cycle thing. And their bodies naturally do it when they're drinking milk at night, that it's within an hour to two hour span. Every well, time. I'm so glad you said that because I've been shot down a couple of times when I've spoken to pregnant, uh, to um, uh, nursing mother friends. Oh, this must be great for your lucid dreaming. They're like, shut the fuck up. I just want to see. <laughs> So yes, that is your experience. And I'm so glad you had that. But for any other nursing mothers listening, you no, I did not have amazing dreams. Oh my God, I just wanted some sleep. I acknowledge that too. But yeah, isn't that cool? So they were giving you a, your own lucid dream retreat. <laughs> they were for years. <laughs> yes, there is a lot of, but it, I think it also plays in the fact of how nourished and supported the mother is in waking life. Mm-hmm. So I had a really helpful partner um, my husband now, who was really present and he would allow me to go take a nap or do other things. And so I was super supportive. And Jeremy lived with us for a year and he was helping with the kid. So like for me, I had the opportunity to set intentions as I went to sleep mm. and to not be upset by that constant wake up and never mm. having a full night's sleep for mm. years. And I'm excited now when I have future clients who are pregnant to be like, oh, we're going to test this with you. (laughs) Rather you than me. (laughs) But yeah, for some women, it can work really well. Yeah. Dare is we're almost at time. And I have to say, yeah, I was like, I have one more question and I want to give you time because I've talked. You go right ahead. Okay. My last question. I never managed to fly in my dreams. Mm -hmm. And it bothers the bejesus out of me. Is that something that you've encountered before? Because I know so many people who are like, yeah, I fly all the time in my dreams. Mm. And I don't. I remember look, last night in one of the lucid dreams, there was a hawk that turned around and right as I was waking up in the dream, I was like, right, I'm supposed to fly. That was my intention. I want to fly. And then I woke up because I was too excited. What do you, how do you try and fly in a lucid dream? How have you failed before if you think you can't do it? I'm, well, I've never gotten fully lucid first. Like, so I've never had the opportunity to say, and now I learned to fly. Um, but in like normal dreaming states, I feel stuck on the ground. Like mm-hmm. my feet either feel like they're stuck or I feel heavy, like I'm moving through water, but it's just normal mm-hmm. air. Um, I can breathe underwater in dreams, but I can't fly. Mm-hmm. So once you get lucid, you just fly because you can do anything you want. So that'll be fine. But interestingly, I mean, this is your dream, right? But yeah. how, what, uh, well, maybe there's some for another time, but to plant the seed, what psychological interpretation would you make of the fact that you feel heavy, stuck on the ground and are unable to lift off? And then I would ask what time in your life were you having those dreams? And then if you could find a correlation between your daytime emotional experience and the nighttime reflection of not be of being stuck on the ground, feeling too heavy uh, uh, to lift off, 
And then it might be interesting. Oh yeah, that was a time in my life where I was really feeling kind of stuck on the ground. You know, I was feeling heavy. I was feeling so much responsibility of my family or whatever it might be. That could be interesting to look at. That's a great prompt for it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to- So once you get lucid, just stick your hand out like Superman or swim fly or however you do it. And you'll just be zooming. Awesome. I'm gonna have to look back at my dream journals now and like see the moments. Yeah, and cross-refer them with your daytime journal. So like on New Year's Eve every year, I get my dream diary for the year and I get, I'm old school. I've got like an actual like daytime diary. So do I. And I go through them together and I'll see like, oh, wow, I had like five lucid dreams uh, within two days there. What was happening? Then I'll check. Oh, it was a big full moon. Mm. Or like, wow, I had loads of nightmares in, in June. What was happening there? Oh, okay. I was heartbroken or whatever it was you know, to cross refer, it's a beautiful way of kind of connecting your, your daytime and your dream life together. Yeah, I'm gonna have to do that. So, the, the one question that I did want to ask you is, uh, do you know where your moon, and your Neptune are in your chart? My moon and my Neptune? No, I'd know my rising, my moon and my star. Okay. Well, what, where's your moon? I'm Leo. I'm double Leo, uh, Libra moon. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Leo star, Leo ascendant Libra. So yeah, double Leo. Sorry, I can only apologize. <laughs> it makes you a great writer. It makes you great at expressing ideas because I got to say, like I said, just reading through and I'm so excited about your new book. Can you can you tell a little bit about what that's going to be? Yeah, so the new book's based on the work I've been doing with army veterans for the past five or no, six or seven years, but it's been you know adapted for a wider audience. Um, and it's for trauma, it's for people with stress or trauma affected sleep. So it has got like one chapter on lucid dreaming, um, but it's got 13 other chapters that are not anything about lucid dreaming. They're about um, yoga nidra, they're about coherent breathing, breath, body, mind, qigong practices, sleep awareness, transforming nightmares. Um, yeah, it's these five pillars of mindfulness of dream and sleep, which are these techniques I've been using with military veterans with kind of high rates of PTSD trauma who haven't been able to sleep. And um, like we did a study and it was like 76% reported improved sleep quality by the end of the six weeks. So they work really well. And the, the basic theory is if the techniques work so well with such heavily traumatized populations, then with seemingly less traumatized populations, I've now realized that isn't true. There are many people who have never seen military combat who are just as, if not more traumatized by familial war zones mm -hmm. than any external war zone. Um, but the, the theory was, if they can work with the veterans, they can work with everyday people even better. Uh, and it, that seems to be true. So we seem to have developed a really effective protocol for, for insomnia, basically. Uh, but it's none of this sleep hygiene stuff. It's not, a, not, not, not kind of tips and tricks. It's about regulating a dysregulated nervous system, which is the core, at the core of insomnia and sleeplessness. You know, you can have all the kind of blue light filtering technology you like and noise canceling headphones and stuff like that. But if you're in fight or flight, when you close your eyes, you ain't getting to sleep mm -hmm. unless you know how to activate the parasympathetic and move into parasympathetic dominance, which is rest and digest in the hypnagogic state. Sleep isn't happening. Um, so it's, it's techniques that allow that. So actually, so because of that, the side effect of the book is it not only helps you sleep, but it, it regulates your nervous system. So we've had a lot of people who not only have their sleep improved, but they've their levels of depression and anxiety and trauma have been reduced as well. Awesome. I can't wait to read it. I have been, uh, I've been recommending uh, Dreaming Through Darkness to all of my coaching clients, just because like oh, I said, I've had a great experience with it. So excited to, to read it and excited to, uh, 
hopefully have you back on if you're if your game wants to get in closer yeah, to the definitely awesome Thank you. thanks charlie cool thank you so much jeremy and amy yeah